Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. And that is exactly what today's episode is about, retain more profit when you sell. That's right, because at some point, whether now or in the future, you, as an owner of investment real estate, are going to contemplate the sale of your buildings. And the most important question to ask yourself is, what is going to happen to the proceeds from the sale when you arrive on the other side of the fence? That is, after the closing. And if you don't take the time to plan for that in advance of exposing your investment real estate to the marketplace, then you will watch much of those proceeds evaporate, a financially devastating consequence that could have been avoided. But don't worry, by the end of this episode, you will have a basic enough understanding of the various tax deferral strategies that are available to you, including one you probably have not heard about. I'm your host, Bill Widener, and today I welcome back Michael Berwick, law partner at the law firm of Greenspoon Martyr. And with him today is Kent Fitzpatrick, Managing Director, Partner, and Senior Consultant of a company whose name, Asset Strategy, says it all. Michael was my guest in 2018 on Episode 5, Deferred Sales Trust, It's an Option, which is one of the four episodes I've published over the last four years on capital gain tax strategies. The others were Episode 3 on the traditional 1031 exchange, Episode 18 on Opportunity Zones, and Episode 37, which covered Delaware Statutory Trust. And today, we will review for you the traditional 1031 exchange, Opportunity Zones, Delaware Statutory Trusts, and then explain the triple net lease strategy. And Michael will tell us why he no longer recommends the Deferred Sales Trust he spoke about in episode number five, and what he and his law partners have structured as an alternative to these other options. Without further ado, Michael and Ken, thanks for being here today for me and the Realty Speak guests. Bill, this is Michael. It is so great to be back with you today on Realty Speak. Thank you, Bill. Uh, this is Kent. Really excited to be on the show. And it's great to have you both here. Michael and Kent, please share with the listeners a little bit about your background. Kent? Thanks, Bill. I've been in the financial services business for over three decades. We run a diverse practice focused in wealth management and retirement consulting. Pretty diverse because we cover both investment management, financial planning, and estate planning. Uh, And certainly some of the topics we're going to be speaking about today fall under the private wealth side. Our company slogan is create, manage, protect, and distribute wealth. And Michael? Since 1995, I've been practicing law. I am a partner at the national law firm Greenspoon Martyr, LLP, uh, where I focus on tax issues, uh, real estate issues, uh, corporate and securities issues, and and some sports, media, and entertainment uh, matters as well. But one of the focal points of my practice is tax deferred and real estate and other exchanges and, and strategies. I have been focusing on that since 2002, and that's what I do. Listeners, as I'm sure you can tell, you're in for some great insights today. Let's get started and review the basic traditional 1031 exchange, also known as like-kind exchange, which, by the way, was limited to real estate with the passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. Michael, just review quickly 
What is a 1031 exchange? And what's 1031 stand for? 1031 is a reference to the actual code section from the Internal Revenue Code. And without being too law professor-ish, the Internal Revenue Code is essentially really the Bible uh, that governs all things uh, tax. So if you look up IRC or Internal Revenue Code and you type in 1031, you'll come to uh, Section 1031, which which, uh, outlines all of the requirements and provisions that one must uh, comply with uh, to effectuate a solid 1031 exchange. I'll give you a couple of those specifics. A 1031 exchange is one of the most inflexible elements of the of the tax code that there is. You must, with a capital M, comply with a, a small but very important number of uh, requirements. First, one needs to engage what's called a qualified intermediary, sometimes referred to as an accommodator, to handle the receipt of funds at sale and uh, the holding of those funds throughout the, the process. And why is that important? It's important because it avoids something called constructive receipt, where the seller actually receives the money. So the qualifying intermediary is somebody who actually, I guess, holds the money like in kind of an escrow from the proceeds from the sale. So at the closing, the title company is distributing the proceeds from the sale to the qualified intermediary? That's precisely so. Yes, that's that's the purpose that the QI serves. And then what are the other aspects of this that you were talking about? Let me give you another second or two on the QI. The QI can't be someone of your choosing. Uh, It can't be, I mean, you can choose your QI, but it can't be someone that's in your sphere of influence. It can't be your sister or your brother-in-law. It can't be your cousin. It can't be your attorney. It has to be someone, someone or a company. A lot of these are companies, QI companies, that is totally uh, disinterested in your affairs. Beyond that, from the, from the date of closing, one has 45 days, that includes holidays, weekends, etc., to identify in writing what's called re- replacement property or replacement properties that one wishes to essentially replace the in 1031 speak, we call the sold property the relinquished property. So it's got its own little lexicon. You've got the sold property, which is the relinquished property, and then you've got to replace the relinquished property. So basically what we're doing here in a 1031 exchange is we are replacing the sold property with a new property, and that's what helps us qualify for the deferral of capital gains. And that's why it's known as a like-kind exchange. I want to clarify like kind because sometimes people get mixed up with that. They feel like, oh, well, if I sell a four family, do I have to buy a four family? No, the like the like relates to real estate itself, right? So if I have an industrial building, I could buy an office building or an apartment building or, or, a, or a mall for that matter, right? Correct. And I think one of the things that you brought up earlier in the segment was uh, the idea of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, which limited... 1031 exchanges specifically to real estate, whereas before there there was a broader category, a broader number of categories of types of highly appreciated assets that you could exchange. For example, art, uh, the whole art world in uh, New York City, for example, where where art is is king, used to revolve around the use of various modes of 1031 uh, exchanges, and that's not possible anymore. 
after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of, of 2017. I bet the art world didn't like that. Candidly, my, my group and at, at Greenspoon and I have had some meetings with Christie's and Sotheby's and what have you to present to them some alternatives to 1031 that they can now utilize. They're excited about that, but you're right. It, it definitely shook up the art world. So out of the several points that you wanted to make, the first was the qualified intermediary. The second was you need to identify a replacement property within 45 days from the closing, and that's calendar days. It has nothing to do with business days, holidays, or weekends. So it's 45 days uh, from the date of the closing. And that is an in-writing identification to the qualified intermediary. And then what else? You have 180 days. Now that's from the date of close. That's not tacked on to the 45. So inclusive of those 45, you've got 180 days or approximately six months, uh, but 180 days exactly uh, in, again, including weekends, holidays, et cetera, to, uh, to actually close on one or more of the properties that you identified within your 45-day ID period. And the only exceptions that have been made for those rules uh, where the IRS has come down and said, we're going to, to grant some clemency here have been for fewer than five or 10 events that included Hurricane Katrina, 9-11, et cetera. And I would assume the pandemic. My recollection was that I don't believe that the pandemic qualified as far as the ID period or, or the closing period. Kent, do you have, uh, do you have yeah, better it, info it, on that? It, it did not. There was no extension. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. And when you identify the property, you do have the ability to identify more than one property if you'd like as the replacement properties. And I guess they all have to be equal to or more than the value of the relinquished property. But, but don't forget that includes debt as well, because if you're selling a property for a million dollars and you have $300,000 worth of debt, you know you may be paying off the debt at the closing, but for, to satisfy the 1031 exchange, you have to replace debt for debt and equity for equity. So equal to or greater than. Um, and I think what you were referring to, there, there's really three different litmus tests, if you will. There's either the three property rule, so you can identify up to three properties to exchange, or the 200% rule, which says, listen, you can identify as much as you want, as long as it doesn't exceed 200% of what you're relinquishing. Or the third one, which is not very commonly used, is the 95% rule, which says, you know, again, you can identify what you what you want, but you have to close on at least 95%. So really those three, the three property rule, the 200% rule, which are most commonly used, and then the 95% rule. That can either be a mix, mixture of real property or uh, DST property. So that it's, it's not an all or nothing. Right. So you could buy something that you're going to manage actively and then have part of the proceeds go to a Delaware statutory trust, which you're not managing. You're just a fractional owner of that. Correct. And that we see a lot of people using that as a backup plan, especially in this competitive real estate marketplace. If, if whatever happens, if it doesn't pass uh, inspection or something gets delayed or the financing gets delayed, um, you, you know, again, that, that, as Michael said, that clock is ticking. You still have that 45 days to, to get that identification completed to your qualified intermediary. So Kent, your company asset strategy uh, actually represents some opportunity zone funds. Would you explain the difference between the traditional 1031 exchange in terms of needing the qualified intermediary 
the 45 days to identify a property and the 180 days to close, and the fact that the money can't be directly distributed to the seller and how that's different in an opportunity zone fund. The key difference is I don't need a qualified intermediary and I don't have a 45-day window, but I do still have 180 days to, to complete reinvesting in a qualified opportunity fund for any capital gain. And, and you really are only looking at investing capital gain dollars that's going to get the benefit. So let's just give a, a quick example. So let's say Michael sold his apartment building. He sells it for a million dollars and he's got a $700,000 gain. He didn't know about needing to call up a qualified intermediary. He didn't know about 1031 exchange. And after the fact, he thinks he's going to cash the check and his accountant says, hey, guess what? You're going to have to put some big quarterly estimates uh, and you're going to pay some big taxes next year. And he says, what do you mean? I, I'm going to do one of those exchange things. Well, it's, it's too late. The, the bus has already left the station. So a qualified opportunity fund would allow him to reinvest all or a portion of that gain, take his basis off the table, put it back. The basis goes in his pocket. That's not taxable again. And now he can defer and eliminate future gains on that um, opportunity fund investment. So using that example, he has a $700,000 gain. He didn't do an exchange. He takes the $700,000, puts it in a qualified opportunity fund. It allows him to defer paying any of the taxes due until the, through the end of 2026. Then if he holds it for a full 10 years, he'll pay no future tax. So his $700,000, let us say it doubled in 10 years, uh, to a million four, he would owe tax uh, it, traditionally on the, on the new gain. If it's held in an opportunity fund, there's no future tax. Something else I want to point out, this episode is designed to help you understand what the options are and the different strategies that you can use to defer capital gains. And in the case of opportunity zones, actually eliminate the capital gain on the 10-year holding period for any profit from that particular fund. But it is not designed for you to make critical decisions on how you're going to move forward. To make critical decision of how you're going to move forward, you are going to engage your existing team of accountants and attorneys. And if they are not familiar with some of these things, then you're going to bring on professionals like Kent and Michael to work with your existing team to figure out what works best for you. And what I like about Kent's firm is that they also do estate planning. So even if you're not thinking about selling, you know, in the next six months or a year, it's probably a good idea to start thinking about the exit strategy, right? Because people think about, oh, you know, I own a business. I need an exit strategy. Well, if you own real estate, you also need an exit strategy, especially if your family doesn't want to take over the real estate when you want to retire, and with that said, I really like to get into the Delaware Statutory Trust, and that's what your firm handles uh, in a very, very big way. Is that correct, Kent? That is correct. Yeah, and the last, the last uh, Delaware Statutory Trust episode was uh, episode thirty-seven. That was uh, around this time last year, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. What really has changed since a year ago? The, the real estate market, number one, and interest rates, number two. When your last guest was talking about yields on first year of the different types of uh, Delaware statutory trusts, 
that has come down and debt percentage, or sometimes it's called an LTV or loan to value, has also dropped because the cost of capital has increased dramatically in the last year, as we all know. So I've seen a lot of the sponsors that are creating Delaware Statutory Trusts reduce the debt in their Delaware Statutory Trusts. So tell me a story about a client that you had who maybe was thinking about a 1031 exchange, a traditional one, and couldn't identify a property and ended up using a Delaware Statutory Trust as a solution and how that all played out. A really good example is one of the advisors on our team is also a a CPA attorney and and does taxes and came to me and said, hey, we have a client that is going to be selling a property for approximately $25 million and he needs help with estate planning and investment with uh, $17 million. And I said, well, that's, that's wonderful. Look forward to working with him. But what happened to the other $8 million? He said, oh, well, he's got to pay tax on that. And I said, well, how does he feel about that? He said, he doesn't feel very good about that at all. And I said, well, why is he going to pay the tax? Why wouldn't we consider, uh, he kind of interrupted me. He said, are you talking about one of those 1031 things? And I said, well, that that could be part of the solution. He said, no, no, no. Uh, He's an older gentleman. He doesn't want to own any more property. He's tired of being a landlord. He's going to pay his tax and, and move on. I said, well, Really, I think there's a better way because if you uh, consider that we can introduce a Delaware statutory trust, which is fractional ownership of institutional property, he doesn't have to be a hands-on landlord. He was selling an office building and wanted to get into uh, other asset classes like you know, multifamily or self-storage or industrial. So we were able to put a diversified portfolio together, give him income, which was actually in excess of what he was receiving when he was an active landlord. And we were also able to reset some depreciation because if you think about it, he bought this asset 40 years ago at a much lower price than what he was selling it for. His depreciation was based upon his original basis. Let's say he bought it for a million dollars and he's selling it 40 years later for, for 25 million. He has the ability to depreciate when he exchanges the property. So the efficiency of his income was even greater because he had the depreciation offset. So what happened to the other 18 million? You said it was 25. He only invested 7 million in the Delaware Statutory Trust? Well, no. So, so originally the, the CPA was saying he was going to pay roughly uh, $8 million in, in, in taxes. Oh, $8 million uh, in taxes. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. the reason he only had 17 out of 25 is because he was going to pay $8 million in taxes. Correct. I, Correct. Yeah, I'm glad I asked that question because that goes back to the evaporation of the proceeds of the sale that we talked about in the introduction to the episode. You helped him avoid losing that $8 million. Correct. And and I, I would say maybe the, the good but sad part of this story is, unfortunately, the gentleman passed away about two or three years after completing this exchange and his son, as the sole heir, was able to get a 100% step-up in basis, just like if you, you were to do that in a, in a physical property, you get the same step-up in basis using a Delaware statutory trust. So it was a, a full completion of both an estate plan, an, an income plan, a tax plan, and the son enjoyed continuing to receive an income his father had set up. Right. And when he exits from that Delaware statutory trust because he got the step-up in basis... Uh, he's only going to pay tax on the gain between 
I guess, the original investment in the Delaware Statutory Trust and whatever he exits at, if there's additional profit. The difference between uh, the, the value as calculated on the day that the father died oh, okay. and, and any appreciation um, thereafter. Is that, you agree, you agree with that, Kat? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Law school. All right. Great. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's why you guys are the professionals and I'm the host. <laughs> And I like being the host because then I don't have to be smart. No, I'm only kidding. I'm very smart. <laughs> That's true. Anything else you want to talk about on Delaware Statutory Trust? Uh, Michael, is there you want to, you you haven't chimed in in a bit? So is there something you want to? I only didn't. There? I only stopped myself from chiming in, Kent, because I found your your presentation to be both articulate and compelling. So we're good. Let's go to triple net lease. While we're really not going to get into a deep dive on triple net lease, I just want the listeners to understand that this is a strategy. What is it? How does it work? And maybe touch a little bit on the difference between a a triple net lease, a Delaware statutory trust, or investing in a qualified opportunity zone. Mike, and maybe this is the opportunity where we get to turn the mic and and we we become the host and we we ask uh, Bill some questions because as a commercial commercial realtor, I think he he probably uh, would be better suited to to respond to that. But from a from a DS from a DST standpoint, um, you know, there are 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 a number of different sectors that someone can invest in. And I mentioned a couple of them, uh, such as multifamily, industrial, hospitality, self-storage, senior housing office, student housing, just to name a few, um, you can you can purchase triple net lease in a DST structure where it's, it's a diversified portfolio um, of, let's say, Walgreens or CVSs or tractor supply or whatever the, the underlying um, uh, triple net lease is. And it's really, uh, I think the idea, and, and I want you to respond to this as a, as a real estate professional, um, is uh, hands-off from a from a, a management and it's, it's an in, income standpoint. So, but I think what you're trading off is it's probably more of a levelized income because maybe you 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 only have uh, uh, rent bumps every you know five or ten years, um, but you can own triple net in a DST structure. But I want to turn the table on you and I want you to speak to owning triple net on a on a direct basis. Yeah, so on a direct basis, and it, and I guess if it's in a DST, it's a passive investment, which it. Uh, DST Delaware Statutory Trust is, but if it's an active investment, what you're doing is you're buying a piece of property somewhere that is improved with a building. So let's call it a Walgreens or a Starbucks, and it's typically a single tenant freestanding operation. So in the case of a Starbucks, you've got a parking lot and you've got the building and Starbucks is responsible for maintaining the property, maintaining the parking lot, paying all the insurance. They are responsible for building the building, maintaining the building. So you relinquish a lot of the responsibilities that are typical in an active real estate investment, like an apartment building, right? Where you have tenants and toilets, right? With the, with the Starbucks on a single piece of property, single tenant, single structure, you're not involved in any of that because Starbucks is responsible. So they're paying the taxes, they're paying everything, and that's why they call it triple net. And what's happening is you're getting rent on a long-term lease that may be five or, well, probably wouldn't be five, but 10, 15, 20 years that already has 
bumps in the rent baked into it, and you're just getting a check every month for that rent, and that's your investment. Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans, to take a moment to share with you that I love that you choose to listen and learn from Realty Speak. And now, with that in mind, I have added a resource page to the Realty Speak website. Designed with you in mind, it's organized with labeled sections that you can click on to reveal a list of professionals, organizations, and companies in that category that you may rely on to help you, the investment property owner. It is a work in progress, but there are already many resources there that you can benefit from. And the first thing you'll want to do is go to the first category, Property Owner Advocate Organizations. There you will find links to RSA, CHIP, and SPONY, and instructions on how to receive their incredibly informative periodic emails that will keep you in the loop with everything you need to know as an investment property operator. Check it out at realtyspeak.myc. It is resources on the menu, and I added a link in the show notes of this episode as well. My mission, be the best real estate advisor, consultant, and broker I can be while helping you sell, purchase, and finance investment real estate. I'm just a phone call away, 917-232-8529. What else can I say? Solutions in real estate, it's in my DNA. And now back to the show. And finally, and certainly not least, we're going to do a little update to episode number five and transition out of that into something else that uses Internal Revenue Code Section 453, which is installment sale, uh, to defer capital gains. And Michael, your law partners and yourself have come up with a strategy that you prefer to utilize as opposed to what we discussed in episode number five. And I'm really looking forward to unpacking that for me and Ken and the listeners as an additional strategy to defer capital gains tax. I don't know how long it was ago that we did episode five. Over four years ago. I was involved with something called the Deferred Sales Trust. You're not going to find the words Deferred Sales Trust in any government publication or in any law or anything else. That's that's a brand name. We're not involved with deferred sales trust anymore. My law firm has never been involved with, with that brand to the extent that I was, I'm not. But I think that there's some real value. In fact, I know that there's some real value in 453 as a code section in terms of tax deferral in cases where a 1031 exchange is not possible because as we talked about with the tax cuts and and jobs act the 1031 iteration that is now on the table is limited only to real estate also even within the confines of a 1031 exchange we never really got into the idea that many of these 1031 exchanges and i don't have data in front of me but they fail they fail for failure to identify within the 45 days. And even when there is a bona fide uh, identification, oftentimes there's an inability to close on the properties uh, identified, property or properties. So what do you do then? Uh, the default position with the qualified qualified intermediary is at the moment, uh, or af- after the expiration of 180 days, if, uh, if, the, if the closing has failed to happen and, and, um, and 180 days is up, the qualified intermediary is obligated to return all of the sale proceeds to the taxpayer seller 
uh, which of course creates uh, a, a taxable event. That is the definition of constructive receipt. There are a whole bunch of other motivations to do something other than a 1031 exchange, either out of necessity, out of strategically, as a as a stopgap mechanism to a potentially failing 1031. So 453, which is the installment sale provision, it is the same provision that uh, exists, for example, if uh, Kent wanted to buy a piece of property from me, but for whatever reason was unable to obtain bank financing, whether it was a credit issue or something else. And I feel comfortable serving as the lender for Kent. We can agree on terms, the payment of periodic interest at a defined rate and the return of principal or the payment of principal. So in a typical installment sale, which you know, installment sales have existed forever, Kent and I would enter into a legally binding agreement called a note. And I would as essentially, as, as the seller, uh, serve as the lender. And Kent would be the borrower. And as such, would, per the note, be paying me a combination of interest and principal in a predefined way that's memorialized in the note. So I want to ask a question here. Using the example of selling something for a million dollars, and the seller says, well, I'm going to hold a loan for 750000 the note, and I'm going to give you $250,000 down payment. Now, is that $250,000 down payment subject to payment of capital gains tax because this constructive receipt of money? It is. Let me take that and expand that to tax deferral. So far, we're just talking about seller financing. Right? Right. Seller financing is as old as the hills. And this is something that existed. And while it may be a component of the structure that you created, it is not the structure you created. It is essentially at the heart of the structure that we've created because I came to my law partners and I said, I've been working since 2009, 2010, specifically in the 453 arena. And I know that deferred sales trust has been used by others to as a tax deferral uh, mechanism. I just don't particularly like the way that they're doing it. Let's go to the actual language. Let's open the Internal Revenue Code or this in this day and age, of course, everything's online. Let's go to the verbiage of 453 and see what we can do completely uh, uh, organically without borrowing anything from anyone else in terms of making this legal and making it work for taxpayers as a tax deferral mechanism that can be used when highly appreciated assets are sold and when 1031 is either not an option legally, not an option electively, or a 1031 fails. You know, without giving too much away or going into too many specifics, using the Internal Revenue Code as the guidepost. We looked at not only the code itself, but we looked at what the service has said over the years when 453s have been challenged and basically what's permissible, what's not permissible. And what my law partners and I came up with was the use of an LLC as the recipient of the funds at closing. And the LLC is party to a note, much like we were talking about in the hypothetical with Kent wherein 
the LLC owes certain obligations to the seller, the taxpayer, synonymous terms. And even you can use the word note holder because that that party is holding the note, which is how it legally fits into to all this. What rights to the seller? You say, well, I'm a seller. I've just sold a million dollar piece of property and that million dollars is in this LLC. What do I get out of it? And the rights and responsibilities of of the seller, taxpayer, note holder, et cetera, are really memorialized and embodied in in that note. So at the closing, there's a $750,000 note, $250,000 in cash from the buyer. And where is that going to in terms of the seller and the LLC? Good question. The $250,000, I'm going to assume, is the seller's basis in the asset being sold. So return of basis does not carry with it any any uh, taxable uh, li- any tax liability there. So the $250,000 can be returned to the seller in a in a tax-free way as it would with the sale of anything. Uh you you basically the idea is you're not you haven't made any money, you're just getting back what you put into the to into the last thing that you sold. And obviously we're using those numbers in this example, but in a person's specific situation as part of doing this for them, you would be identifying their basis so that they could make decisions around that number. Sure. You've got basis, you've got adjusted basis, which is additional monies that have been put in um, to the asset. So let's say, for example, that I'm selling something for $10 million and my cost of acquiring it originally was $3 million. And I put another million dollars in over the years in improvements and and, and so forth. And I'm not getting into depreciation because I don't want to complicate the issue, but there's there are other factors at play as well. And when someone's doing this, you're going to identify all those factors and they're going to understand how it applies to them specifically. Going back to the to the example, the 250 was a return of basis. Now the 750 note goes to the LLC. The note is a legally binding agreement between two parties. In this case, the seller and the LLC. In this original example that we had about Kent and, and my transaction and going just between the two of us, not involving a bank and everything else, we talk about the idea of a note existing between us that's going to talk about interest and interest rate and principal and, and a schedule for payment of principal. So in this case, now it's the LLC that has that $750,000. And the LLC is responsible for ensuring that the funds are there to make these periodic interest payments um, to the seller and also that the principal is preserved. There are a lot of ways to structure this insofar as principal and interest. You can you can have interest be delayed, interest payments delayed for a number of years. You can have principal paid out over a seven and a half year period, for example, at uh, $100,000 a year, thus your 750, or you can have all of the principal stay in it till the end uh, of some predetermined uh, time frame and have the entire $750,000 in principal paid back at the end. Why would you do that? Because you really like the income that that $750,000 is producing uh, annually, which is which is paid to you as the seller in, in the form of these, these interest payments. The rate can be the same, but obviously the gross amount that's in there in the form of principal is going to produce more dollars for you than if it were a depleting 
uh, essentially a depleting pool of funds. And I just want to clarify for the listeners. So there were two aspects of this, return of principal and payment of interest. So payment of interest would then be ordinary income to the seller as time goes on. Correct. And return of principal would be subject to capital gains tax based on how it's being distributed over a period of time. Correct. If you use the example of $100,000 a year for seven and a half years to eat up to $750,000, seller would pay capital gains tax each year on the 100000 that they received for that year. Correct. For the next seven and a half years with the last year being only 50000 And I guess some of the benefit to that is depending on what their financial situation, it could impact the uh, capital gains rate uh, and make it lower and and and, and actually... If you compared it to paying the taxes all at once or paying them over a period of time, and, and again, you also can uh, just leave it there and not pay taxes. And like you say, uh, each each situation is different depending on a person's goals, and you would identify that with them when you're structuring the transaction. Bill, there are really three takeaways that are very brief that you're going to want to take, take from this. One is the idea of... Um, spreading out or amortizing almost your your capital gains obligations instead of being hit with the the capital gains on the sale of an entire 750 at one time um, so that you can spread that out over time another subtle point is uh having to do and you alluded to this a moment ago but when people are getting older and they're transitioning from a high marginal tax rate to let's say they stop working and all of their income becomes passive and they're they're older, and they've got a, a lower you know marginal rate, for example, than they do during their prime earning years, and and so forth. And the other is the fact that the, probably the most important thing that that's more of a warning than a benefit, but the, the rate at which capital gains are assessed to the taxpayer, uh, those rates are determined in the year in which the actual payments are being made. So if there was not a balloon payment and you're spreading this out over a seven plus year period, your rates, depending on what happens, whether capital gains rates go up, down, go up and down, stay the same, et cetera, that's going to determine for better or for worse, um, the rate at which you're being taxed on the capital gains portions. In other words, if you're taking no principal on the year that the sale is made at all, then the year in which you sell for capital gains purposes is kind of irrelevant. The, the only relevant portion is when you're actually constructively receiving those proceeds, not the interest, but the, the principal. And if you do leave that as a balloon payment for some future year, uh, it's going to be very, very important to ascertain what the capital gains rates are, are likely to be in that specific year. Now, that being said, the note can be amended from time to time, but not too often so as to create what's called a sham transaction. But it can be amended periodically. I guess the, the, the one thing I'll say is that there's relative to a 1031 exchange and some other strategies, there is a fair amount of flexibility with the strategy, but not so much flexibility that the IRS begins to question whether this is in fact a bona fide transaction or not. So in this structure, who are the members of the LLC? Because the seller is not a member of the LLC, correct? Correct. The LLC members are very analogous to the qualified intermediary that we talked about, the role of the QI or the accommodator. 
when it comes to a 1031 exchange. We're also talking about disinterested, professional, well-funded parties that do this and are engaged in this for the purpose of making money. The typical fee paid to the LLC managers is 50 basis points or one half of 1% annually for administering the investment and providing necessary information for taxes to run this operation, if you will, of the LLC. It's not the financial advisor. It's not the lawyer. It's not anybody with a prior existing relationship to the taxpayer, other than if the same parties are managing a previous 453 installment sale of another asset. If you've structured this, then obviously you have people that can assume this role. Yes. So in the example that we have, got the 250 basis back, so he's got that cash, and the 750 is the note, and the buyer is paying the note into the LLC, correct? Let me stop you there. Okay. I'm going to correct you right now. On the day of the closing, where the buyer acquires the property, the buyer is out of the transaction. The buyer has paid the money to the LLC, the 750000 The buyer has paid 250000 to the seller, which was the return of basis. And that entire million dollars could, could have gone through the LLC and the LLC would then in turn cut a check or wire the two fifty back to the, the original seller because, you know, as, as I said, that's, a, that's not a taxable transaction. So the actual buyer who's going to wind up with the property leaves this entire discussion and equation at the moment the deal closes. Is that buyer gone out and got traditional financing? Doesn't matter. Well, does the 750 exist that is as a note or have has there been some influx of capital that has paid off the note? Remember, we've got three parties here and I think we're confusing about what two parties are privy to the note. So let me just walk through it very succinctly. You've got the seller who is the taxpayer, the one that's on the hook for selling the million dollar property less than 250 basis. That seller is selling through the uh, LLC to the actual buyer. We'll, we'll call the buyer, you know, you in this case, Bill, okay? Y- you are, are either coming up with a million dollars yourself, you're getting a mortgage, bank financing, whatever. You're just responsible for showing up on the closing date with the million dollars. Once you ante up the million dollars, you're out. You get the property. Title passes to you. And you get the property that you have always sought to buy without being party really to this transaction. So you're going to send the million dollars to the LLC. The LLC is going to send $250,000 in the form of return of basis to the seller. And what's going to exist is one note between the LLC who has the $750,000 and the seller who's got his or her $250,000 in the form of return of basis and the note that says, hey, I am going to get my $750,000 on this schedule at this, uh, you're going to pay me this amount of interest and so forth and so on. And what is the LLC doing? We talked about professional professionals that are in the business to make money and investments and so forth. Um, they're going to invest that money, that $750,000 in a manner that that essentially out earns 
the amount of interest that, that they're obligated to pay to the seller. I get it now. I was confused, all right? But I get it now. So so that $750,000 in that LLC is liquid. And now the members of the LLC, whose job is to make money, invest that $750,000 in any kind of asset, whether it be securities or bonds or other real estate. And that, and that is growing, so to speak, the balance in that LLC to a point where it can not only meet the obligation of the note, but there's extra money there, which I guess can be distributed however one defines it. Is that correct? It is. And I don't know if you've got your seatbelt fastened or not, but I'm, I'm, I'd love to throw one more little wrinkle into this, which, is, which I think your listeners will find fascinating. Sounds good to me. Here is where things get really exciting and exotic, but still based on the way that we do this. And we've got a lot of case law and a lot of IRS guidance about the way we do this. So in a case where the seller has other business interests that are separate and apart from the asset that the seller's selling, let's say, for example, that the seller isn't selling real estate, the seller's selling a a business. It doesn't matter. It could be either one. And the seller has other businesses or the seller is selling real estate and the seller is selling an apartment building, but the seller also owns separate and apart from whatever, whatever, whatever entity uh, owned, that they put in place to own that apartment building. They've got another LLC over here or another one over here, one that owns uh, a manufacturing uh, facility, one of them that's a going concern business. You know, other businesses that are that are mature, ongoing, et, et cetera. What we can do, and I'll give you a, a very real world example. Wait, can I guess? Can I guess that existing LLC can be the LLC? No, but close. Okay. But good guess. So I can't use any names here for you know legal purposes, but we sat, my team and I sat in a major American city in a boardroom several months ago with at least two generations of a very large real estate uh, conglomerate family. And uh, there was a changing of the guard or there is a changing of the guard from generation A to B and and there is a generation C as well. And we're talking about nine to 10 figures worth of of real estate, a hundred percent or very close to it of, uh, of their holdings are in investment real estate, big buildings. And, and, and I can't, I'm not going to disclose the asset class because I don't want to give anything away, but very, very large, uh, expensive buildings in different places. And one of the things that they came to me and to my team to discuss was the fact that as they are, they're planning on selling X number of these properties and they've been using 1031 for decades and decades and decades and decades, but they no longer at this point, they're going to bite the bullet and not use 1031. Why would they do that when they've been able to preserve so much wealth over the years with 1031? Because they felt that they were overly concentrated in real estate and they wanted to find a way to diversify out of real estate in part, not in whole, for the benefit of the next generation, but they wanted to do so in a way that was going to minimize their taxes. So we sat down with them, we talked and talked, and 
in a traditional structured installment sale, the way that we do them, you know, everything is variable in terms of how much one can earn in the in the markets at any given time. And obviously that changes. And right now there's a lot of volatility, as Ken can certainly attest to. So, but you know, we said we could probably get you six and a half, seven, maybe seven and a half percent, just depending on a lot of factors and risk tolerances and everything else. And they said, this is a great strategy, but candidly, and they were referring to 2021, they said with our non-real estate investments that were market-based, we made 23% last year. And I, I just, you know, it's a, it's a really great strategy from a tax perspective, but we, we don't have an appetite at, at seven or even 8% or anything like that. It's just not not worth it to us. We just feel like we're leaving too much money on the table. And we floated the idea to them and are in the process of hammering this out as we speak to rely on on case law and on IRS holdings and, and so forth to be able that the LLC, which we've been talking about this whole time, the LLC that's managing this investment, they are permitted. And the, 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 the cases differ, whether it's 80%, 90%, but somewhere between 80 and 90%, if certain criteria are, are met, to actually enter into an equity, not a debt, an equity investment, a preferred equity investment into one of the seller's other businesses, a legitimate existing business, not one that was just formed or anything like that. And it's really interesting because in that way, let's say the other business is they've got a business that's their family office or something like that. They've got another business that just makes investments in their their own money going into equities in, in, in the stock market. And okay, and that's an existing business. We know that they did it in 2021 because they made 23%, right? So now they're selling half a billion dollars in, in real estate. They could take, and we're comfortable at the 80% uh, mark, they could take 80% of the proceeds from that in this LLC, and that LLC could make a PREF investment, a preferred investment into another operating company that's owned by the seller slash taxpayer. And in that way, it enables the seller to actually be in some ways, have I don't want to say more control, but to have to be the master of its own domain with regard to 80% of the proceeds. They're honoring the LLC because that preferred return is going to be more than enough to satisfy the interest payments that need to be made from the LLC to the seller taxpayer. And that's why it's structured as a PREF. But the general party active participant in, in that joint venture and in that, in that other LLC is going to be the, the taxpayer itself or himself or herself. Everything I just described, this is exotic as it gets, but if done correctly, and this is where you need to be really careful, otherwise the IRS will come after you and without any reservations whatsoever. This is not even so much pushing the envelope, but if it's done wrong, you've just violated everything and you're going to wind up owing taxes on all of it. So these are deals that we do and we've done many of them over the last year. And I'm involved in one that's actually closing like this on Monday. Did I lose you? No, actually, you didn't, lo- you didn't lose me. And what you just demonstrated is that there is flexibility here. But I like the fact that you pointed out that this has to be done correctly, because if it's not done correctly, 
then there could be tremendous risk to the principal. Now, the IRS, they published something recently, which I got in a couple of different emails from different accountants and and, um, tax law firms. It's called the Dirty Dozen Tax Stamps and How to Protect Yourself, right? And Mm -hmm. uh, so I read through all those. And number four on the list is called Monetized Installment Sale. And then I'd like you to tell me why this structure that you use is not a monetized installment sale. On that dirty dozen list, there are one or more, including the monetized installment sale of those dozen that on the surface may look like they, they're at least kissing cousins to what we're doing in 453. It's really a list of 12 types of transactions that the Internal Revenue uh, Service is focusing on as being suspect and that on a case-by-case basis, you may be in trouble if you're doing one of these. It's good IRS code and good tax strategies used and applied in questionable ways. So I I would say don't infer that a 453 installment sale is bad. It's not. I think there's different interpretations and applications of it. And I think that Dirty Dozen example is a, a, a different application and use than what you just described. I think you make a great point, Ken. Going just one step further than that, one of the reasons why We at Greenspoon Martyr and my team, my tax team, believes in doing things exactly the way that I laid out for you today and why we feel very comfortable in counseling our clients on this particular strategy and some of the variations that I described towards the end where it got more interesting and complex is that we always go back to, we're lawyers, we're not promoters. We always, always, always go back to the code and go back to IRS precedent in terms of what we're recommending. And there's a lot of different ways, as Kent just said, to structure these types of things. We, and and again, this is what separates us from the non-lawyers out there that are promoting similar strategies, is that we use the law as our sole guidepost for tax deferral and for structuring really anything in, in the tax area. It might be an interesting or, or creative application, but that creativity can never get to a point where we feel that we've gone past either the black letter law as it's memorialized in the code and or the interpretations that have been made uh, of that law by courts or, or by the service itself over the years. Guys, that was great. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Bill, there is one thing I want to clarify because some of the things we've talked about today have to take place pre-closing. So we talked about 453 installment sales and things like 1031 exchanges using Delaware statutory trusts. Those have to be contemplated before a closing where a opportunity fund is something that can be presented after a closing and as a means of mitigating some future tax liability. Thanks so much, Kent. And and I'm going to put all the contact information for both Michael and Kent in the show notes. And always feel free to reach out to me, Bill Widener. Thanks so much. Uh, I'm sure the listeners' heads are spinning. Mine certainly is. But what we've learned today is that there are more questions than you thought that you need to ask in advance of selling your investment real estate to make sure that your proceeds from the sale aren't subject to evaporation. Guys, thanks for being here. 
Bill, I thank you for uh, including me. Uh, it was great to do episode five with you. I feel like we've come a long way since then, baby. And on behalf of my law firm, my partners at Greenspoon Martyr, it's great to be a part of such a great podcast. Yeah, and I'll echo the same, Bill. Thanks so much. This was a, a fun episode to participate in. Well, there you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Please subscribe. You can do so on the website. Just go to the podcast page on the website, and there is an opt-in option at the top of the page. Or search for Realty Speak on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. Find it, open it, hit subscribe, and you're in. And we're also on Spotify. And please help Realty Speak grow by sharing the show with others. From the website player, just click share and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, financing, investment, real estate, or planning for a sale like we just discussed, access past episodes, or just chat, you can contact me directly via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.